0: Welcome, my name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics here at the University of Sydney. I am also the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute. Um, We're very happy for the second time to be um, working in partnership with 350.org to bring you this event tonight. To start though, I do want to acknowledge the traditional owners uh, of the land that we are meeting on, the Gadigal people of the UR Nation. Uh, We want to acknowledge elders past and present. And what we tend to say at these events uh, is that this has been a place of learning about the relationship between humans and the non-human environment for 40,000 years. And we respect the knowledge that comes down from the traditional owners. So I just want to give you a little um, description of how the evening will run, uh, and then I'll get out of the way. So we'll start with an introduction uh, from Blair Palese from 350.org. Uh, who will introduce each of the speakers. We're actually gonna have three speakers uh, this evening, uh, Gemma Green, John Hewson, and our featured speaker, Ben Caldicott. Uh, and there will be time at the end for Q&A, and as is important in the work of 350.org, after the Q&A we'll also have some time to think about and to strategize about what folks can do with the knowledge that you learn tonight. So thanks, thanks for coming, and I'd like to introduce Blair Palaisi from 350.org.
1: Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming out. The weather's been horrid, so it's nice to see so many people, and it's a tough subject for many, so... It's not light on, it's not colorful, it's not pretty pictures or celebrities, but it's stuff that we can all learn about and take action through. And we're lucky to have some great experts uh, from overseas and from here in Australia. So I'll introduce each one to you, and then at the end, the Q&A, we'll bring them all up and you'll have a chance to ask the panel, as it were, standing up um, any questions you have about what they present. First, uh, I'd like to welcome Gemma Green, who's here from uh, WA and Perth. She's a former investment banker with JP Morgan London, where she helped to establish the Global Environment and Social Risk Management Office. She's currently a research fellow and PhD candidate at Curtin University and a member of the advisory board at Carbon Tracker. She's also uh, working to set up Australia's first fossil free superannuation fund. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Gemma has a Bachelor of Commerce and Finance and completed a Master's of Sustainability at Cambridge University where her thesis focused on corporate credit ratings and environmental risk. I'd like to welcome up Gemma Green. Thank you.
2: Good evening. OPEC tells us presently that there are 1,500 billion barrels of oil underground and under the sea. And according to the World Coal Association, there are 1,038 billion tonnes of coal in the ground, which based on the current rates of extraction will take about 132 years to dig up. And of course, due to the laws of conservation of energy, that energy will never disappear. But an interesting thing has been happening over the past few years. In the UK in 1970, 95% of the energy produced came from fossil fuels. However, in 2013, that number was closer to 80%. And overall, they're actually losing less energy now than they did in 1970. In South Australia, 30% of the energy already comes from renewables. In Perth, where I'm from, we have 360 megawatts of installed capacity of solar PV, growing at 20% per annum, in spite of a very small feed-in tariff. So an interesting phenomena is on the horizon. Although the energy is existing, we have less desire to use it and we're sourcing it from different places. China once wanted coal-fired power, but even they are getting smog sensitive. They're now producing more energy from renewables each year than we have in our, our whole power system. China and the US just recently issued a joint statement pledging combined action to reduce their carbon emissions. If China, famed for its dirty smog and not particularly enlightened ideology, is leading the way, that should tell us something. At one level though, this shouldn't surprise us. We're things that have value um, which have then gone out of use. Um, Could I sell this to anybody? Could every, anyone give me a disc to put into it? Uh, could I print from it? No. And so it could be with energy. The implications of this are interesting. Because of the changes, there are some financials tied up with it. Pension funds have trillions of dollars invested directly in fossil fuel companies. Ben Caldecott's talk later will go through the technical stuff like this in more detail. But essentially, you might think that the laws of supply and demand will just take care of this. That the market will find some way, will always find a way to use that carbon. After all, there's always some service that can decode your old floppy disks. Actually, in a way, the best example is the Sony Betamax. Because it was cheaper, and in many ways, a better base load system. And yet, it went out of date. Now, the question I'd like you all to answer is, surely we assume that with all the coal still out there, someone, somewhere will build a coal-fired power station to make energy out of it. Is the 8 million thousand tonnes of coal used globally last year likely to be more than the amount of coal we will use this year? If not, is the coal in the ground still worth as much? If demand diminishes, the price will go down, and at some point it could become unviable for companies to extract it. So is the coal in the ground worth the same, or as much as it is currently valued at? Let's take a look at a few different things. Some things do go out of fashion but come back in, like leggings and flares. Who would have thought? There is an interesting case with Germany who suddenly regarded their dependence on Russian gas as worrying and now coal might come back in fashion, at least in the short term, as they ramp up their renewables investments. Ultimately, how do you sell last year's fashion? Cheaply is the answer. Energy um, has something else going on, like a technology that gets superseded it's tempting to think that coal is forever. It's chemically the same as diamonds, and it is, of course, forever theoretically. It's been around forever. It's as old as the hills. Overall, is the trend with fossil fuels like Betamax or like flared trousers? Is it going out only to come back in again later? Or is it going out for good? And if it is going out for good, What are the implications for your superannuation? Something interesting has been happening to the relative cost of coal, gas and wind. Since 2013, building new wind in Australia is cheaper than new fossil fuels. This investment produces a cheaper source of electricity because wind and solar don't have the input costs of gas producers and coal producers, which is bringing generation costs down. When I was at investment bank JP Morgan, the guys we didn't want to talk too much were the new clean technology companies. They were seen as just too risky, but now they have reached the mainstream. There will be a moment when other renewables cost less than fossil fuels, as illustrated by this slide on solar and this one. There is research going on all over the world which is highlighting how much carbon dioxide is being burnt and extracted, like this one from Carbon Tracker, which shows how much carbon dioxide is listed on stock exchanges all over the world. The stigmatisation of fossil fuels is real. Leaders from around the world are speaking out. Let's take a look at some of those now. Lord Stern, in commenting on the, um, the Unburnable Carbon Report which were the slides you just saw. Um, and interestingly, Hill will be on late, nine, late line this evening um, speaking about climate change in the Australian context, given the West Australian Senate by-election happening in Perth, or in Western Australia on the 5th of April. The World Bank President also has something to say. Barack Obama, even women have something to say about it. There's a social opprobrium being heaped on industry as well. Divestment campaigns like this one we're in this evening are happening all over the world. All this means the amount of coal being used and therefore its value has an uncertain future. Carbon is becoming politically less acceptable. This, in my view, could trigger the death spiral of the fossil fuel industry. And that could mean there's a whole swathe of coal resources underground, which no one wants. Rather like technology that becomes obsolete. It's not just the -the bone-in-the-nose greenies that are doing this. It's also hardcore financial players. HSBC recently came out speaking about fossil fuel risk and the risk of stranded assets many financial institutions and investors have already begun to divest, including Rabobank, Storebrand, Bank, Store the Uniting Church of Christ, and the largest pension fund in the world, the Norwegian Pension Fund, which has $800 billion under management and owns more than 2% of the European Stock Exchange. How do we reconcile these seemingly opposite views? Where on the one hand in Australia, we have a gas and coal boom, Both this and renewable growth is going on. But the growth of one will overtake the other. When you retire, your superannuation is made up of companies which make and sell things. These things give the company a valuation and your shares a value. Would you want your superannuation to be invested in $500,000 of Betamax tapes? Obviously not because you can't sell that. You couldn't even give one away. It could be exactly the same with fossil fuels. There's a global commitment to limit man-made warming to two degrees Celsius. If the stigmatization of fossil fuels continue and the renewable alternatives are cheaper, fossil fuel companies may not be able to use or sell 80% of their fossil fuel reserves. Whereas 80% of those fossil fuel reserves are currently on those companies' balance sheets and reflected in their share price, which makes up the value of your superannuation. There are interesting consequences. Superannuation funds, which are heavily invested in fossil fuels, are facing potential problems. There could become a critical breakdown when carbon becomes an untouchable. And if your super is invested, you could be impacted. Carbon might bite people in the arse more than just with rising temperature. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Gemma. It was good to have an introduction and also to think about the Australian context as we hear from uh, our next two speakers. I'd like to introduce John Hewson, who's, I think, one of the great thinkers in this space and was well ahead of the curve in bringing the issue of the risks of investment into um, what is potentially stranded assets here in Australia and also overseas. John is the former lead, head of the Liberal Party of Australia and currently chairs the Asset Owners Disclosure Project, It's an independent, not-for-profit global organization whose objective is to protect members' retirement savings from the risks posed by climate change by improving the level of disclosure and industry best practice. John has worked for the Treasury, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the IMF, the UN, and is a professor and head of school at the University of New South Wales. Uh, He's been dean at Macquarie Graduate School of Management, and in business, he's best known as the founder of the Macquarie Bank. He was chairman of ABN AMRO Australia, and as chairman director, uh, he's also been chairman and director of a host of public and private companies and charities. In politics, John was chief of staff and advisor to the prime minister and treasurer in the liberal Fraser government, before becoming leader of the Liberal Party, uh, and then after he's uh, played a significant role in his career in Asia, including in China and he was recently Special Advisor on Infrastructure Finance to the Executive Director of UNESCO. So I'd like to welcome John to give you a perspective on what he knows, but also on the work of AODP. Thanks, John.
3: Well, thanks very much. It's a very it's a significant pleasure to be here. I got caught in the traffic coming down George Street tonight. I thought I might be stranded in the sense that uh, Ben's going to be talking about. And ben, I know, he's uh, going to talk to, at some length, I guess, about the, uh, the stranding of assets and the risks that are associated with that. In particular, I think he'll emphasise to some extent the role that climate change play, part, may play in stranding fossil fuel-based assets in particular. My uh, request tonight was to speak briefly about the Asset Owners Disclosure Project. We are concerned about the investment dollar. Uh, the project focuses on the top 1,000 pension and superannuation funds, um, university endowment funds, sovereign wealth funds and insurance companies around the world. Now, this top 1,000, they are in size above about $5 billion in assets under ownership. They account for something like 70 trillion US dollars worth of of, uh, investable funds. They are by far the largest capital mover in the global financial system. Yet, disturbingly, they invest on average about 55% of those funds in carbon-exposed industries and only 2% of those funds in low-carbon-intensive industries. As an economist and as somebody who's been involved in investment banking for a long time, that is a massive portfolio risk. It's a 55 to 2 bet against significant climate change working in time to strand some of those assets that are underlying the 55% of that investment. Uh, Not surprisingly, we're getting a fair bit of pushback from some of those uh, global pension and superannuation funds, which is difficult to understand. Many of them, for example, demand transparency on the part of the companies in which they invest. They want to know how those companies are managing their exposures to, to climate risk, yet they're not prepared to apply the same principles of uh, transparency and accountability to themselves. They don't want us to respond to our survey in any detail, uh, but we are surveying them and we are rating them, and so by surveying them, rating them, and to some extent naming and shaming them, we are precipitating a reaction among that industry that is really quite significant. For example, the largest pension fund in the United States, uh, CalPERS, recently came out in support of our activities, and has embraced a very active program of managing climate risk and climate exposures. Now, we're not about saying to them, look, you've got to get out of that 55%. But you do have a portfolio risk which you have to manage. And in today's financial system, it's not an easy risk to manage. They can't insure it. They can't lay it off in a derivatives market. The financial markets have not got to that level of sophistication. So the best bet for them is to internally adjust their relative exposures to low-carbon and high-carbon intensive investments. Our thinking is that if we could encourage them, embarrass them, shame them into changing that mix, perhaps increasing the 2% that they invest in low-carbon intensive industries to, say, 5 or 6%, then globally we'd generate enough investment funds to fund what I personally believe should be something of a technological revolution in response to climate change. There should be new technologies, renewable energies, renew- renewable um, new energy efficiencies, a whole range of new businesses, a whole range of new jobs, many of which we can't foresee as that technological process rolls out. But it does suffer enormously from a lack of funds. Uh, In my business life, I've been involved uh, uh, in a group called the Business Leaders Forum on Sustainable Development, which tried to educate the business community back from the late 1990s about the tremendous potential there is Uh, in in responding adequately to climate change. There are businesses that will become viable as a sensible response to climate change. For example, we launched a company back in 2000. I got frustrated with that committee, by the way, because it didn't bring much business response. We brought Al Gore to Australia uh, seven or eight years ago, and I guess he was dispensed with at the time as a failed politician and uh, an entertainer. Um, But he did uh, take the speech he gave here, an inconvenient truth, and turn it into something quite influential in terms of the global debate. But personally, I decided to demonstrate that you could go into business and make money out of a sensible, climate oriented uh, uh, business activity. For example, we built the first household garbage recycling plant at Eastern Creek back in 2000, which extracted 100% of the methane gas from garbage before it was uh, uh, land fillable uh, in 24 hours. Uh, it was part of the first uh, exercise to build an energy-efficient light bulb company a New Zealand-based company. In another company, we built the largest biodiesel plant in the world in Singapore. Another one I worked on, Green Data Centres, massive consumers, of course, of power, uh, and, uh, and and a range of others. The point is that all of those businesses were, were viable in themselves. They would be even more viable if we get a sensible system of carbon trading, which would give them another income stream, uh, and at the same time, of course, uh, um, it proved the point that you can do sensible business activity in response to climate change. So I don't believe, necessarily believe, the initial assumption of many people that responding to climate change is going to be negative on growth, negative on jobs. I'm not convinced about that on the basis of my own personal experience. So I think this Asset Owners Disclosure Project focuses in on a fundamental element of the issue... All of the directors or trustees of pension and superannuation funds, for example, have a fiduciary responsibility. That is to manage those asset values over the working life of their members, to maximise those values, and admittedly, they mostly put that uh, management task out to shorter-term advisors, people who are motivated more short-term, are remunerated more short-term. But as asset owners, they have a longer-term responsibility. And in that longer-term fiduciary responsibility, they should recognise the magnitude of a 55 to 2 bet against uh, uh, significant climate change, stranding some of those assets, uh, resulting in collapsing share prices, resulting in collapsing property values, and and so on. In order to add force to that, we've got a social media platform called The Vital Few, where we encourage individual superannuation fund members to write to, email their... Their uh, directors or trustees asking them how they're managing climate risk. Explain to us why you are investing so heavily in fossil uh, fuel-based industries and so on. So from top down and bottom up, we think we can change the nature of their investment behaviour, which will be fundamental to an adequate response to climate change. One final point is recently, last week, I think in New York, we launched a new index where we're rating the endowment funds of the top 300 universities around the world. I would have expected on face value that universities would be at the cutting edge of this debate. I mean, a lot of the climate scientists that have, have developed the unquestioned scientific support for the argument are employed by universities. Students, alumni and other stakeholders are very concerned, I'm sure, about how those funds are being managed. It's very interesting, the sort of magnitude of the pushback we're getting from the university sector, which I say should be at the cutting edge of this debate. The late-line program was mentioned earlier. Uh, It is also going to run on that issue and the response of some Australian universities to that survey. But I put it to you that while governments are going to dick around deciding how and when and where they're going to price carbon or what other mandation techniques or restrictions or policies they're going to pursue to respond to climate change, we can dramatically change the nature of the debate by changing the distribution of that investment dollar. Thank you.
1: Thank you, John. I'd like to introduce Ben Caldicott next. And hopefully many of you have seen some of Ben's media interviews um, over the last few days and have an idea of some of the things he'll talk about. Ben has been recognized as a leader in his field by the U.S. Department of State and the Independent, the newspaper The Independent. Prior to joining Oxford, he was head of policy at investment bank Climate Change Capital, where he ran the company's research center and advised clients and funds on the development of policy-driven markets. Ben has previously worked as head of government advisory at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, as research director of environment and energy at the think tank Policy Exchange, and as a deputy director at the strategy uh, directorate of the UK's Department of Energy and Climate Change. Ben read economics and specialized in development and China at the University of Cambridge and the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. He's been a visiting scholar at Peking University and a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford. Ben's here for almost two weeks, and he's visiting four cities in Australia, so keep an eye out for other media if you can, and encourage others to go around. He'll be in Melbourne and uh, Brisbane next, so keep an eye out and let those know who are people you know, because we need to get the message about what he's talking about to those audiences, Brisbane in particular, so thank you, Ben.
4: Great. Well, thank you, Blair, for that very kind introduction, and good evening. Thank you so much for coming. It's a great honor to be at the University of Sydney tonight to talk about these issues, and thanks to Gemma and to John for their their great talks and presentations. Um, I'm going to talk for about 25 minutes or so, and I'm going to talk a bit about um, stranded assets and how how they relate to the environment, and what I mean by stranded assets. And then I'm going to talk a bit about um, research we did looking at Uh, China's changing demand for coal and what that could potentially mean for the Australian coal economy. And then what I hope we can do is have a a, um, a, a vigorous, interesting discussion, which I think is probably what we all all want to move on to very quickly. Um, uh, Okay, So, um, so what are stranded assets? Well, stranded assets are assets that have suffered from a premature or unanticipated write-down, devaluation, or in extremis a conversion to liabilities. And as um, Gemma rightly pointed out, this is not a a new thing. This is something that is part and parcel of capitalist economic systems. We see assets being stranded all the time as a result of changes in regulation, the developments of new technology, and sometimes accidents, extreme events. and they have lots of examples. Betamax is a technology platform that got stranded, a, a great example. You have Kodak as well, um, and looking ahead, and, and currently, technology companies like BlackBerry and, and Nokia have lots of stranded assets. Um, our hypothesis is that there are a confluence of new risks related in one way or another to the environment, and these things are putting more assets at risk from value destruction. Um, from stranding so a confluence of of different risks related to the environment that are coming together that are making uh, assets in a whole range of different sectors of the global economy more prone to becoming stranded and I've put these we've put these risks into six buckets as you can see on the slide Um, the first bucket is environmental challenges of various kinds physical climate change perhaps first among them but other ones include biodiversity loss, habitat loss, water constraints, and so on. All of these having profound impacts around the world today, and, and, and that looks set to continue, even if we um, you know, make significant progress on, on carbon emissions and other things. A degree of, of climatic change will happen. You have um, a whole suite of new environmental regulations being introduced, particularly in relation to climate change, but also in relation to air pollution in relation to uh, other forms of local environmental pollution, you also have um, te- technological change, innovation, um, and as Gemma pointed out, you have very significant falls in the prices of renewable energy technologies. Um, so, offshore uh, onshore wind prices, sorry, down 15% uh, since 2009, solar PV prices down 44% over the same period. Now, that, that makes those technologies cost competitive with fossil fuels in an increasing number of places around the world. You also have, in parallel to these those those three things, um, changing consumer preferences, shifting social norms, um, and that can range from consumer preferences shifting, people wanting to buy certified, traceable forest products, or wanting to buy fair trade or organic, all the way through to uh, the fossil fuel divestment campaign which has emerged um, almost from nowhere and has rapidly expanded at a rate and pace that no one anticipated. Now, those sorts of things could affect asset values in a whole range of different ways. Another example could be, as related to the global financial crisis, the fact that the way in which we value things, the way in which societies value things is shifting as well. So that could have an impact. And then you have um, changing resource landscapes. So the emergence of shale gas in the United States but also its potential development in the European Union, in China, in in other places, could have a significant impact on energy markets. In in agriculture, you have uh, phosphate availability, the availability of fertilizers that could have an impact too. And then finally, one area that's perhaps, in some ways very developed and others not, is uh, litigation and changing statutory interpretation. So on the back of citizens and a number of different environmental groups taking Uh, cases to courts in different jurisdictions, the threat of carbon liability, challenges to fiduciary responsibility, all of these things are starting to have an impact and that that looks set to continue. Now, we think that these, these different buckets of risk are actually connected, they're interdependent, there are interesting potential domino effects, cascades that could result. So for example, how could changing social norms affect regulation and how could that then affect the deployment of technology and the price of technology? So there are these potential connections that we're already starting to see and it's gonna be very interesting, very important to understand how these different risks are connected in different places. Now the second kind of overarching hypothesis that we have at Oxford is that these different risks are rarely understood um, particularly by the investment community. And if they are understood, they're only understood in a, in a limited sense. And, and, and then, even then, they're poorly incorporated into decision making. Um, and so, having worked at a financial institution, the three of us have all worked in financial institutions, um, we know that it's very hard for investors undertaking due diligence processes on investments to get a, get a handle on some of these risks and then to quantify them and then apply, apply that to their decision making. And that's that, that, that lack of understanding, that lack of pricing, means that uh, there's a potential systemic implication, that there's an overexposure to assets at risk. And the assets at risk tend to be environmentally unsustainable assets. So that's a, obviously a massive problem for the environment. And then finally, a third hypothesis is that um, there are significant benefits associated with managing each of these, these risks. So in addition to, to hedging Risk exposure, reducing risk exposure by tackling some of these things, you're going to get economic benefits, financial benefits from from doing so. So, if you introduce um, measures and investments to deal with government regulation on carbon pollution, um, you might reduce, you might improve your resource efficiency and reduce the price of inputs, and that might make your business more competitive, for example. So, there are those those things. I'm just going to talk a tiny bit about. Um, drill down a bit into a couple of these different buckets of risk before talking about um, our report uh, on China and Australia. So this slide, apologies if it's a bit small, but these are big screens so hopefully you can see, um, shows, this is from Munich Re, um, the global insurer. And it's a 33-year data set from 1980 to 2013. And it shows geophysical Um, events in red that sort of at the bottom you can see uh, basically no change from year to year well a bit of change from year to year obviously but across that period um, it's kind of it's it's flat Um, in contrast if you look at the meteorological events the hydrological events the climatological events things like tropical storms um, flooding extreme temperature variations forest fires and so on there is a a very clear increase over that 33 year period. Um, And I think the next slide shows, this in value terms, adjusted for inflation. So you have total losses, insured, uninsured, and the the thing to pay attention to is is really the top line that tracks, tracks upwards. So it's adjusted overall losses as a result of the different events that I was talking about. So clearly, physical climate change, one of many different environmental challenges facing different economies around the world is is having an increasing impact and stranding assets um, in a number of different places all the time. Now, this shows, illustrates the impact of um, shifting resource availability and shifting resource markets and how they can affect assets. So this is a, uh, a data set taken from some OECD research and used by others including McKinsey and it it takes a basket of commodities Um, and 2001 is the base year in this graph Um, and it shows that basically since 1900 to the year 2000 um, in real terms, so this is all adjusted for inflation in real terms commodity prices saw a very significant fall and there's obviously a lot of volatility as a result of wars and so on Um, but there has been that decline. And you see from the year 2000 until, in this case, until 2011, but you could argue it continues now, um, the the, the complete, that that secular decline has been offset by the rise of China, by the rise of India and other emerging economies that have pushed up commodity prices, and obviously that's going to have a very significant impact on on a whole range of sectors that are dependent on commodities um, in in their, their production processes. We talked about regulation and policy and how that is one of the biggest threats. Um, This graph shows uh, the latest analysis from Globe International. This came out several weeks ago and looks at the 66 countries that are responsible for 88% of global CO2 emissions. And it shows how the number of policies relating to climate, um, how they've significantly increased over a relatively short period of time. So uh, as of 2013, there are now 487 laws pertaining to climate. That's up from less than 200, or sorry, 100 in 2002. Uh, This this graph obviously says nothing about the efficacy of these different policies, but it shows that there is a trend to introduce more of them um, uh, in different jurisdictions, exception perhaps being Australia. I do realize that. (laughs) But we hope that will change, I suppose. We've seen some of this. Uh, I mean, Gemma talked about falling renewable energy costs. I think that's very significant. I just wanted to give you an example um, of how that's having a very disruptive effect Uh, in some markets. This is um, looking at European utilities. So this is a Bloomberg chart, and it shows the share price of some big European utilities. Um, In green, RWE, in gray, EON, in blue, Drax, um, and in pink, Endesa. And then you have an outlier, which is in orange, and that's Scottish and Southern Energy. Now, the ones that have seen, um, well, you you will see that from the peak uh, in 07, 08, share prices have fallen significantly um, for most of those with the exception of Scottish and Southern Energy. And the the reason for that um, is, is really twofold. The first is the massive, unanticipated scale of renewables deployment in a number of European countries, most European countries. So particularly in Germany, Italy, Spain. Um, And and because renewables have almost zero marginal cost, um, when they've been installed and they generate electricity, they push down the wholesale prices. And that's affected uh, utilities with a lot of thermal generation in in their portfolios. And so you've seen that, that that's had a big impact. The other thing that's had a big impact is the emergence of shale gas, which has pushed very cheap coal into the European markets and has resulted in a lot of new gas investments in Europe becoming stranded assets. Um, now, this is, this is having a very profound impact on the ability of utilities, traditionally seen as you know safe companies providing safe utility returns. They're having real trouble. Um, and that's, that's compromising the ability of of European governments to deliver on on their investment plans for the energy sector. SSE is the exception here because it has a lot of renewables in its portfolio. It has a, a, a much more diversified portfolio than the other the other four companies here. So just an example of how what I'm talking about is not something that's far off and distant. It's actually immediate and transforming markets today. The other thing I wanted to say on technology is that there has been a consistent um, underestimate in how quickly deployment happens, and this 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 has affected um, financial analysts and utility companies. It's also affects the IEA, the International Energy Agency. So just you know, this shows they publish a big report every year called the World Energy Outlook that has projections for, for for how they think the energy system will change in the next 20 years or so. Now this shows how their view of different world energy outlooks has changed. So in 2004, they thought that by 2030, renewables would have a very similar share of the global energy mix. In 2007, they took a slightly different view, but generally pretty conservative. Slightly more, not very much more. In 08, they revised their their projections again. And then in 2013, um, the latest one, uh, this extends now to two thousand thirty five um, they 've obviously shot up their their their, their projections and there 's this consistent revision um, in what people think because you know, decentralized renewables are incredibly attractive in in so many different places and are very easy to install and deploy so it 's taking taking catching people off guard consistently um, now, why does all of this matter? Um, It matters because the size of value at risk from these risks is is very significant across sectors and geographies. Um, I've talked about how stranded assets are having a real impact today. Um, They are, that looks to be accelerating. From what we've seen so far, um, it's happening in quite unexpected and counterintuitive ways. And so it's really important to try and understand how these things are connected, um, what the domino effects might be, which I talked about before. And then finally, there are there are issues around how we achieve uh, a sustainable, or well, transition to a sustainable global economy. How do we do that, um, uh, given the political economy dynamics that we all have to face in different countries, um, how do we minimize the amount of assets that are stranded? Um, there's not much point investing in in assets today that are likely to be stranded in five, 10, 15 years. The losses to the companies involved, but, al- but also to our societies would be very great. So understanding these things help, helps us and helps policymakers to, to minimize the extent of, of these stranded assets. Um, so I'm gonna fast forward. Okay, so going to this, this you know, that, what I've described sort of bounds our work and, and, and how we approach things we took those sort of buckets of risk that I talked about at the beginning and applied um, those to, to, the coal, to coal demand in China. Um, and what we wanted to do was to see how that might change um, projections for coal demand in China relative to what miners and investment houses were, were thinking, and specifically what that would then mean for Australian coal assets. So the interesting thing about China is that Um, It only became a net importer of coal um, in 2009. So uh, very recently, in fact. And since that period, it has been almost entirely responsible for um, encouraging investment in new new coal expansions and new coal mines. Its domestic market is now three times bigger um, than the international coal trade. It's it's absolutely massive. It consumes half the world's coal. And so, you know, Australian miners and investors have been thinking about how they can bank some of that growth. You know, could that growth continue into the future? And that's what's driven some of these new proposals that that, um, politicians and others have been talking about here. So we looked at these different factors, um, ranging from carbon pricing. Chinese are introducing cap and trade schemes in different places, plan to have a, a national scheme. We looked at energy intensity and efficiency. That's a central plank of their five-year plans, the current and the the next one. Um, We looked at gas. We looked at local um, concern for environmental issues, the number of protests that have been going on. We looked at the efficiency of the iron and steel sector. Um, We looked at the deployment of renewables. uh, And we looked at things like um, water constraint and, and, and air pollution as well. And we analyzed how each of these different factors might shift um, China's demand for coal in the short, medium, and long term, and how much it might shift it by relative to uh, what some, some investors and what some miners' sort of mainstream view on, on, on future demand might be. And, we, and I don't want to kind of go through all of this in too much detail, but we basically found that a lot of these are already significant. So things like carbon pricing, energy intensity, deployment of renewables, and also nuclear and hydro, in the short run, are likely to have quite a significant impact on demand, and that, and that all of these things, you know, down the line, um, medium, long term, go from, kind of go from, yellow to red, um, and and that's, that's quite interesting, given that, so many projects, so much investment is predicated on, continued rising demand and 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 high prices. Um, it's worth saying that, uh, the way in which the Chinese market what well, the Chinese demand for coal will affect assets here in Australia is not by how much coal they necessarily buy from here specifically, it's more about um, their impact on the global price. So it might be the case that they don't actually import very much directly from Australia, but, um, but if the price falls, if they consume less and the international price fo- falls, the price that Australian coal miners will get, um, e- even if they export to other countries will be less and that's how you have the impact um, on, on miners and existing mines. Now, our analysis has sort of been backed up of late. There have been a number of recent studies that have come out from mainstream financial houses like Deutsche Bank and Bernstein and City and Goldman Sachs and HSBC that have all said, they, they don't look at all of these things, but their base case, which is mainly looking at, you know, structural change in China, um, they've all said that they think that peak coal demand in China will happen between 2016 and 2020, which is remarkably soon. So that's the that's sort of the mainstream, mainstream view from serious financial institutions. Um, and I don't think, I was in Canberra today, I came, came down this, this evening, um, that politicians and policymakers in this country are uh, considering, that that's uh, pondering, that that will even happen. So, so I guess one question from, from their research, and then if you overlay what we're looking at, it, what, what, what the implication is, you know, what's the strategy, what are the contingency plans, um, if demand for China stalls soon, um, and that affects global prices. Um, I'm just gonna... Now I think the, the other thing worth emphasizing is that um, coal producers are already under pressure. So it's it's not like again we aren't talking about something that is far far out into the future. Um, coal prices are low at the moment. There's Wood Mackenzie analysis that shows that half of Australia's coal mines operated at a loss when the price is below $96 a ton. The current price is at $82 a ton, um, and that's and that's meant that you know, independent of the fossil fuel divestment movement, uh, investors have been taking their money out of coal and coal stocks, and so you see. Peabody Coal and other, other pure play uh, coal companies seeing very significant falls in their share price as a result of that trend. Um, we've talked about how you know, less demand from China would would impact prices, and I think that's already the consensus view. and then if you overlay the environmental considerations, and I talked about that, makes the case even stronger and sooner, nearer term. Um, I think that if Another, another concern is that if these big mines, particularly in the Galilee, do go online, for, for whatever reason, even if the economics doesn't stack up, they, they go ahead, uh, the fact is that they're so big that they would, their exports would then depress the, the coal price further. So you have this, you know, under any scenario, it's, gonna be, it's likely to be bad news. So if these, these mines happen, they pour lots of coal into the international market, the price of coal then falls as a, as a result of that, which would then affect the economics of the existing coal mines and coal infrastructure in the economy. So, so, so there's that, that issue. And I think that, again, one thing from the conversations I've been having so far is, you know, is there a view about what, what the right level of exports are? Um, our research is not suggesting that um, you know the Australian coal industry is going is to suddenly collapse. That's not what we're saying. Um, so there is a question about, you know, to what extent does it have a role in the medium term? What's the best way of maximising export earnings from that? And it seems to me that expansion is definitely not the, the way to do that. And then some final thoughts about, you know, I think the bi- the bigger challenge, the biggest challenge here, uh, from an economic perspective, is is a question of um, balance. So at the moment. Australia has a, a lopsided economic strategy focused on natural resources. Um, thermal coal uh, is clearly um, not going to be performing very well over this decade. You have concerns about iron ore as well, another major industry. Um, but that dependency obviously pushes up the currency, and that's going to affect and has affected manufacturing and the services sector and other industries like the wine industry. And that, and that dependency has... Um, severely impacted the underlying economic potential of the country. So how long can that be sustained? And um, what's the right size for the natural resources sector in this country? And unfortunately, it is a zero-sum game between mining and these other things, um, and somebody has to take a view. So I'll leave you with that thought, um, and I look forward to, to questions. Thank you.
1: Nicholas has got a microphone, so if you'd like to raise your hand, I'll try and field them this way. What
5: impact do you think that the uh, recent meeting in China had when they were talking about closing down a lot of the inef- um, inefficient foundries and trying to clean up the appalling air, con- air pollution? Are they actually going to take action, and is that going to have an effect?
4: On China, yes, that will have an effect, uh, th- Three weeks ago, two weeks ago, thereabouts, uh, Li Keqiang said he was gonna, Chinese government was gonna declare war on air pollution in China. I think they're very serious about it. Um, And I think uh, central government, provincial governments are taking a number of um, quite difficult steps to to reduce air pollution in particular. Um, And also are introducing, you know, very well designed um, emissions trading schemes remarkably quickly. So you've got these pilots that have been introduced rapidly, and they're very, you know, they've got this very ambitious target to introduce a national scheme by 2015-16. I've got every confidence they'll they'll be able to do that. Um, And quickly, on to your point about the commodity chart, I'll I'll send you the chart later, and then you can question the the people that produced it, but it's a joint OECD-McKinsey chart, as I understand it.
3: I just have to pick up the point about Macquarie Bank. (laughs)
4: Uh,
3: I didn't say it was the founder, it was a founder. I was actually hired by my very good friend, David Clark, when he was head of Hill Samuel, to get them a banking licence. I came up with a strategy that was implemented to get the banking licence. I became a founding director of Macquarie Bank on the executive committee.
1: Hi, one question for Ben. Um, The response by the coal industry here to questions
2: around Chinese demand is, oh, well, India will... Step up, and that's where you know, we've got Indian investment going into, or potentially going into the Galilee Basin. Have you got any plans to look at the implications for development of the Indian market for Australia? Um, and then to John, um, I'm, I'm quite interested to know your view of the potential for the investment campaigns to cascade um, if we get a whole lot of superannuation investors really interested in trying to switch their savings. Um, how big could that be, and when do
0: you think that shift could happen?
4: Um, so on India, yeah, this is a question that I've been getting repeatedly. Um, and I think there is there's a lot of naive thinking going on with regards to Australia. So I, I talked about that's uh, right, sorry, India. I talked about um, Chinese demand peaking, the, con- the consensus view being 2016 to 2020. Now, there's this idea going around that somehow Indian demand is going to step in precisely at the moment that that demand falls away, and that somehow it's going to Properly offset it, and you know nothing will happen. That, that's incredibly optimistic. So, I, one, I don't necessarily believe that that the Indians are going to go for coal in the same way. Um, you know, one of the thing the thing about development processes is that countries learn from them and change course and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, and then, you know, there's a question of timing. Um, and so, I think that's a question you know Australian policymakers need to think about very carefully when they're thinking about coal and over-reliance on it. Um, Are we thinking about doing work on India and coal? The answer is yes. We've got a good pipeline of different projects, and we can talk about that offline.
3: Thanks. Look, we don't know how quickly this will cascade in terms of its effect. We've done two surveys in each of the last two Decembers. We've already had a significant effect where some major players, I mentioned CalP, for example, the largest pension fund in the US, has really taken it seriously in the course of the last 12 months, but not in the first survey. Others, uh, Florida Pension Fund, for example, came from about 116 to the top 10 in terms of ratings very quickly. In my experience, a few years ago, I launched an index called Reputex, where we rated the top 100 uh, listed Australian companies um, in terms of corporate social responsibility, their environmental strategies, uh, their industrial relations, their social impacts and so on. And there was only one AAA-rated company, which was Westpac. We got about 40-odd percent, I think, of the top 100 that responded to the survey. But as soon as the survey was announced at the press club in Canberra, we immediately got phone calls from, for example, the other banks. How come I'm Commonwealth 27 or I'm NAB and I'm 52 and what are they doing that I'm not doing? And that's the sort of process that we're already seeing taking place in terms of superannuation industry. And as I think, as time goes on, they recognise that, you know, you can't continue to defend the indefensible. So I think uh, we hope it snowballs quicker rather than slower, but maybe it will take some time.
1: We'll try to move back into the crowd. My question's for
5: Gemma. Uh, I thought
6: one way of speeding up the finance industry becoming more responsive was to ask my financial advisor yesterday what were the names of funds that don't invest in fossil fuel? Can you help answer that question?
1: Um,
2: internationally I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to invest in it. I, I think in the United States, CalPERS Um, store brand, which is Norwegian, um, and also the Norwegian Pension Fund. Um, At the moment in Australia, there isn't a fossil-free superannuation fund, but there will be soon.
1: It's not 100% Mm. fossil-free. They have gas in their mix. Yeah. Uh, Australian
2: Ethical Super um, has fossil fuels in their funds.
1: But having said that, It looks like there may be some changes, so watch in the next four to six months. There may be two to three funds that come onto the market, so keep an eye out, and if you're keen to support them, it's a fantastic way to make a difference.
5: Um, Ben, uh, thank you very much for your presentation and for what I think is a brilliant piece of work. I've read it, and thank you so much for what is an amazingly refreshing insight in terms of how we think about this problem. Um, But my question is to you, and it draws a little bit on what I was reacting to having heard Gemma. Uh, Coal is not only used for generating electricity. Coal is also used for creating things like steel and concrete. And there are no technologies that I'm aware of that really help us in terms of emissions when generating that concentrated source of energy that is required for concrete and steel. So I would just like to get your perspective on the relative demand for coal for that use.
4: That was energetic. (laughs) Um, So I mean, on coking coal, I think uh, coking coal suppliers have been hit quite hard very recently because, you know the iron ore demand figures from China have been quite bad um, coking coal companies kind of track track that Is that better um, and but I, but I think that in in China you have this structural economic shift going on moving away from investment to consumption and so you you're going to have less steel needed for for building infrastructure and that sort of stuff so um, I think uh, there'll be well, not less, but less growth in coking coal demand. There are some technology options for, for reducing, um, well, certainly lots of technology options for improving the efficiency of those production processes, and those need to be deployed and can be deployed. And then there's a question of to what extent you can use carbon capture and storage technology for that particular process.
7: I think in, uh, in 2012 alone, approximately $674 billion were invested by the uh, The largest publicly traded that it 's the, the two hundred largest publicly traded fossil fuel companies and uh, that was invested in um, finding and developing new sources of fossil fuels like oil fields and so forth um, from a campaign perspective in terms of the politics and the, and the finance industry how how viable do you think a campaign would be to um, through petitions, letter writing, and so forth, would be to try to get these fossil fuel companies to um, invest at least 50% of their new capital investment in renewable energy, say, by 2025. Um, In terms of the the, the timeline and the numbers, is there anything that, that would be feasible from a campaign perspective?
2: I don't know what is actually um, possible in terms of the um, the amount, the percentage that you could demand. I mean, you could try anything, really. But I think people moving their money um, speaks volumes to the capital markets, and it it sends a signal that the status quo just isn't good enough anymore. So I, I think. That in aggregate, when people move their money to different... their superannuation to different funds, ultimately, there'll be a reallocation of capital in the capital markets. So I, I think it... it you, can, you can demand whatever you like, but I, I think right now they'll ignore you until people start moving with their feet.
1: But,
4: so I think there is a... Um, you know, there's clearly a, a capex bias among some of the big international energy companies. Um, now from an investor perspective investors are increasingly going well look, that capex is being spent in increasingly high cost um, sources of energy the arctic tar sands and so on um, that are quite risky Uh, never mind climate, they're pretty risky things to be doing, they're expensive things to be doing you add in the environmental considerations it's it's a silly thing to be doing and so they're asking for their capital back they're going, hang on you should be giving that back to us as dividend payments instead of locking up um, a huge amount of CapEx into these projects that are probably not going to be successful. And so I think that's where a lot of the the successful pressure is coming from. Um, big investors talking to these natural resources companies and going, give us back some of our, our, our money um, as dividend instead of spending it as CapEx. And management uh, of these firms in some instances, is starting to warm up to this idea, partly because they see the challenges of these different projects, partly because they, they want to see their share price rise a bit in the short run. Um, but I think that's where you have the, the opportunity for the most leverage, in my view.
3: Yeah, I think investor pressure is the best uh, mechanism to, to drive this process. Basically, right now, capital markets are underestimating the risk. That, uh, that, they are, that individual fossil fuel companies are running, that superannuation pension funds are running. Uh, financial markets are historically pretty bad at getting risk right. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure these fossil fuel companies look at the extent to which governments around the world still encourage and subsidise the development of fossil fuel and fossil fuel businesses. But having said that, the risks are very significant. Um, and I just draw your attention to the way the financial markets underpriced the subprime risk and the associated risks of all the debt instruments that were built on the securitisation of those subprime loans. Nobody would listen to anybody uh, in 2007, early 2008, about that risk. I know I tried. I actually moved an investment fund completely out of the stock market in the expectation that the market would fall by about 50%. But I couldn't find any investment bank or funds manager who would support exiting the stock market. Not one. They all said, underweight this, overweight that, and you'll be okay." OK meant that it wouldn't go down 50% in terms of the management of the funds they managed. It would only go down 49 but I'd still lose 50% of the investment.
1: Can I step in just uh, while you have the microphone here? Ben, you mentioned in your presentation protests in China, and I think it was intriguing to think that we're protesting often here in Australia and the, you know, um, in other countries, but in China, is there a growing... Um, groundswell of protest around air quality or around climate in general, and can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's not something we hear about often.
4: Sure, uh, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, there's been research published recently that shows that um, the number of protests related to the environment in China has been increasing by 30% year on year for about the last 20 years. Now that's not all entirely down to um, the environment, it's down to you know, relaxations of certain Rules and so on, but um, but absolutely, those those protests are happening and they've been successful in closing or preventing the development of um, new coal-fired power stations and particularly mm-hmm. subcritical coal-fired power stations and those that are using lignite and those obviously have the most impact in terms of carbon pollution, but also local environmental pollution. So they're getting very very organised.
3: Mm-hmm. People forget that in uh, 93, I mean, my uh, environmental policy didn't draw a lot of attention at the time, but uh, our objective was a 20% reduction in emissions by 2020 off a 1990 base, and now they're struggling to get 5% off a 2000 base. I suggest that's an indicator of how much that debate has shifted and what's generally accepted by the broader community, media and business and so on, as to an acceptable objective... And um, as it stands now, I mean, Tony Abbott was my press secretary. I, I've had some experience with him. Um, <laughs> I can say is that I think circumstances may actually drive whoever's in government in this country in, in the course of perhaps the next few years. Ben's talking about 2016 as being a, a bit of a, a critical year in this respect, but I think circumstances drive change in politics, and unfortunately we're at the stage where it's going to perhaps take a crisis to focus people's attention on what needs to be done, but the lack of urgency on the issue is, is, is alarming, in my mind. <laughs>
5: Hello, and thank you so much for all your talks. They were really brilliant. Um, my question is also for John. Um, so I'm a student here at Sydney, and um, with the Australian Student Environment Network, we're working on a campaign fossil-free unis, uh, fossil-free universities, that is. So I'm very interested by your um, survey of the top 300 universities, or should I say the top-bottom um 300 universities and I'm interested if the universities have had like any reaction to that or if there's any evidence of you know who's coming out on rock bottom
3: I think you might see this issue addressed on Late Lateline um, <laughs> as it happened one of the Australian universities uh, responded to our survey by emailing a number of other universities trying to get them to collude in their response <laughs> and to, uh, to uh, basically tell us to piss off um and uh, for some reason, they inadvertently sent that email to us. <laughs> so, um, for some reason, it seems to have made the media this evening <laughs> and, and the press tomorrow. And uh, I do think that that's the sort of thing that's going to take to actually focus people's minds. It is about embarrassing people into action, I'm sorry to say. And I mentioned in my remarks that, you know, we get pushback and it's interesting double standard that... These funds, and superannuation and pension funds in particular, uh, and university funds now, push back. Uh, They demand transparency on many of the companies in which they invest, but they don't apply the same standards to themselves. So we are thinking of another index, uh, an hypocrisy index, (laughs) where we can expose the laggards.
0: Uh, thank you very much for your talks. I really enjoyed them. Um, I have a, a question about those of us who are in supers, uh, super schemes that we don't actually have a choice. They're kind of compulsory. So I don't know, for UNSW, for example, my husband has a defined benefits scheme. He It's compulsory that he puts into that. Um, we've been pressuring through the vital few, so thanks for organizing that. It's a great thing, great initiative. But, um, you know, what chance do we have that the Unisuper, for example, is going to do the right thing and start divesting? I know, was it 350.org actually had a meeting with them? I'm we curious didn't... to know the outcome. I didn't hear yeah, it. Yeah, it was very
1: positive. Okay. Um, they were surprised that um, there was such a reaction. I think it was something like 18, 1,800 people quite quickly responded to a call for... I'm a uni super member and I'm concerned about this, please tell me. They do have options uh, that are you know, social and environmental, but they're not 100% fossil free. But they've expressed an interest in finding a way, if possible, to offer that. So now they're in the process of figuring out what would that exclude and how would they set it up. But it's people like you we have to thank. And it doesn't take a lot to ask them and also the, number, the sheer number and the speed at which people responded clearly got their attention. So that's one example, but any Superfund that you know, has numbers of members responding quite quickly is starting to think about it differently as having cut through. So thank you for doing it, and hopefully within six months we'll have some news on how they're moving.
2: I wrote to the chief investment officer and told him um, of my background and um, the runaround I'd been given, and uh, he invited me to meet him. I, I met him uh, in Melbourne three weeks ago, and um, gave him some advice and guidance on what I thought would be a good composition of a fund and what to exclude. And he actually informed me that they are going to set up a fossil-free fund. Um, yeah. The timing of it is unclear, not because of lack of commitment, but there's actually quite a lot of work involved and they've appointed Dow Jones to assist them in developing the screening for uh, an indexed balanced fossil
1: free fund. Maybe three more questions? Pickard?
5: Look, uh, this is just a general question about the, um, the, the effect of... Uh, of, of nuclear power. Um, I know some years ago, a lot of environmentalists saw nuclear as the lesser of the two evils against fossil fuels. Of course, lately we've seen the, uh, the disaster of Fukushima, and uh, much of the result, the effects of that are still being kept secret. But people are still talking about thorium efficient and hydrogen fusion as future energy, major energy sources. My question is: Do you see um, the nuclear issue, or nuclear, the promise of nuclear energy, as being a significant distractor from investment in uh, renewable energy sources?
2: I think that the nuclear is a bit of a furfy. The um, the percentage of nuclear in the the global energy mix is on the decline. To commission a nuclear a station takes around 20 years. When you compare that against a solar powered um, uh, installation, which can be, you know put it put in within a matter of a year or a year or two it 's unable to compete from a technological perspective that twenty year during that 20 year period the other technologies are going to improve dramatically in efficiency and also come down in cost so the, and the sheer cost base for uh, nuclear i think will re, will render it redundant
4: so um, I think if we have to, you know if you 're concerned about a two degree constraint um, I think it's actually important that we look to replace existing nuclear power stations. Um, Now, the problem with that, though, uh, in terms of the practicalities of the financing and so on, is that these nuclear power stations are massive. And um, they tie up capital for a long time in the construction phase. Um, And so there aren't very many companies that can actually afford to do this with their balance sheets. It's only states that can afford to do it, really. So in the uk we've gone through this massive long winded process of commissioning our first new power, nuclear power station in a very long time um, and it's basically the french French state backed company doing it called edf um, and uh, that's that that one new build power station is going is half of edf's market capitalization so edF is not going to be able to do very many of these things and so we do need a if if we are going to do replacement of existing nuclear power stations, we're going to need a very different financing model of it. And, and I, But I do agree with Gemma that um, you know, decentralized renewables, uh, they're just, they just just—they constantly surprise everyone by their ability to be deployed very quickly and at scale. And and that's obviously uh, where, where most of the effort needs to go. But I do think nuclear replacement's important.
6: Uh, thanks. <coughs> it's nice to see that uh, not only the left-hand side of the room is getting the questions in an environmental debate. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to ask about um, uh, some things that might have not been thought about as pushing uh, uh, the the stranded asset scenario. Uh, It was touched on, in a sense, with this idea of air pollution, but recently the World Health Organisation last year um, declared that the particulate uh, matter from diesel exhaust as a grade one carcinogen, and I actually put this uh, to the CEO of Origin Energy in a room next door just to see if he'd go scurrying off to his lawyers. Um, so I'm just wondering if, in a wider uh, scheme, the idea of fossil fuel is being sued uh, by people affected in various ways by uh, 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 fossil fuel emissions could possibly hasten this process. We saw in Australia what happened when tobacco smoke was uh, uh, the first test case. Uh, uh, they got, a club got sued and immediately, virtually overnight every club uh, became smoke free because they couldn't afford all their employees seeing them. So just wondering if a similar scenario might hasten the uh, demise of fossil fuel.
4: So uh litigation is important for well, many reasons. But there are two ways, I think, that it can really affect um, the fossil economy. The first is through d- direct mechanisms, through, so actual court cases that get compensation, and through that process, reveal new information. And so in the, if you, the analog being um, of you mentioned tobacco, that's a good one. So you had these long-running court cases uh, people managed to get compensation in the end that did have an impact on on tobacco companies but in, but, but in parallel you know you had this all this information disclosure as a result of um, the court cases entering the public domain shifting public opinion and so those are sort of indirect impacts of litigation and i think those are can be more significant in the sense that they they spur regulation and changes to to regulation. So, in the tobacco case, obviously, bans on advertising and so on, which were very significant. So, you could see the same happening with with fossil fuel litigation, possibly carbon liability. You know, there could be a case that gets compensation, and then that process of doing the court case shifts public opinion, um, and, and and that process is only going to be sped up with um, social media, Twitter, and so on, that didn't exist when when these t- cases for tobacco were going on.
3: Look, I agree with that. I mean, there are a number of paths to a low-carbon economy, and, and consumer reaction and pressure, and part of that being litigation, one of them. I mean, there are a lot of others. Um, one thing we're thinking of in that area is perhaps there could be litigation for breach of fiduciary duty on on the part of one of the directors or trustees of a major superannuation or pension fund. Um, we're taking legal advice. <laughs>
1: Just one more question and then we'll wrap
6: up thank you Um, you talk a lot about stranded assets and you are structuring it as being a problem presumably it's only a problem for the company that has them and once a company starts indicating that it's not doing too well, let's say because of stranded assets, irreversible investments, the shareholders will probably leave as quickly as they can before they get an even bigger loss. So are we going to be left with stranded assets which are coal mines which aren't mined anymore, uh, power stations like in Victoria not used anymore with the only sufferers being the shareholders which didn't get out in time?
4: Great last question. I think uh, that's a, that would be lucky. You know, if, if the only people that lost out in that scenario were the shareholders, I think what will uh, likely happen is that if there were coal mines and other assets stranded because of the, the changes that we were talking about this evening, um, actually it would probably be the government that picked up the tab, the state government or the central government in one way or another. So there is this shifting of risk from the private sector to the public sector, and that's one reason why it's important to have a political discourse about these issues.
3: I'd just add, as an expansion on that, that there is a significant moral hazard, I think, in this area, as there is uh, in the financial sector, that uh, some of those institutions, banks, global banks, were considered too big to fail. And I think some of them rely on that and that ultimately they'll be bailed out. And I'd imagine some major energy utilities in particular countries would take a similar view and seek to exploit the circumstances to their own advantage. But it's a significant moral hazard that needs to be addressed in my view.
1: I just want to take a minute to thank all of you for coming, to thank Sydney Uni and the um, fantastic auditorium that we have tonight. Thanks to David and to Meredith for putting it together and and joining joining up, and Ben for traveling so far and sharing his, uh, his knowledge and the studies at Oxford, for Gemma for coming from the WA and also speaking from her own experience, and John for many, many fantastic years of leadership, and we hope we can get you to do more. So thank you very much.